Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wildstorm Addiction. This is episode eight, and we're going to be covering comics from the weeks of June 30th to July 14th. I'm Joe David Solis. And I'm Ben Murphy. And we're going to start off with some Wildstorm news. Uh, just want to remind everybody, we do talk about spoilers during our podcast, but all our written reviews are spoiler-free unless otherwise noted on the site. Uh, I want to give a special shout-out to our international listeners. According to our download reports, we've got people who've downloaded from Chile, China, the United Kingdom, Australia, France, Spain, Canada, and the Russian Federation. And, of course, a big thanks to all our listeners in the U.S. See, Ben, we've gone international now. <laughs> all right. That's pretty cool. Or you could say we've gone planetary. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hey, if you're if you're a Wildstorm fan and you're listening to this, you better get that. So, <laughs> speaking of getting that, um, there's lots more uh, Wildstorm digital comic offerings this week. Uh, as many of you know, DC finally launched all their digital comic offerings, and this week, courtesy of Comicsology.com, we've got several new things uh, online. And each of these are ranging between $0.99 cents to $1.99. We've got Supernatural Origins number one. We've got the entire Dante's Inferno six-issue mini available now. We also have the entire original Fringe miniseries. And uh, that has number zero, which is actually for free. Uh, Mirror's Edge just had number one through five listed. For some reason, number six wasn't on there. But they also had number zero of that one for free. There's now the first three issues of Victorian Undead. There's Planetary and the Authority crossover. Ruling the World one-shot is up there. And from the World's End titles, they had uh, each of the first ones, and now they've got Wildcast number 2, Gen 13, 22, Stormwatch PhD 14, and the Authority number 2. And this was a, this was a cool surprise. They actually put up Wildstorm Universe number 0, which was the free giveaway from last summer's San Diego Comic-Con, and it also came out in comic shops about a week later. And it's written by our very own Chris Stryker of the Higher Authority website, uh, which if you've never been, it's simply just type in the authority.ws. There is no www. And that's also for free. Uh, that's basically a primer for World's End that you can catch up on, on what's been going on in the Wallstrom Universe the last couple of years. So if you're wondering where to start, that's the perfect issue to start right there. It's Wallstorm Universe number zero, and it is free. And one last thing, I just want to say thanks to Titanthrope for uh, coming over to, the, to our site and uh, leaving a comment on Authority number 24, the written review. Uh, we want to hear more of you who are coming on. Uh, just um, let us know your thoughts about the issues, you know, and we'll come try to discuss it with you. So, anyway, that's all we got in the news, so let's move on to the reviews. Alright, up first we have The Authority number 24, and that's written by Tom Taylor, with art by Al Barrio Nuevo. The Authority 24 just gets right into it from the last issue that we read, um, which was titled Mondragon. And, you know, the Wildstorm Universe core titles have been doing status reports to catch any new readers up on what's been happening. Well, this one doesn't do that. It just starts right off. Um, and this issue starts right off with River. Now, River is the the new century baby that was introduced a few 
issues ago and was, you know, brought onto the carrier by the high and he was protecting him. Well, you know, Rivers kind of stealing the show in this issue and he's 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 running the ship and and what's going on cuz he's trying to to fight back this this force that's out in in space that the carrier has run into and it's Mondegron and it's this energy uh, he doesn't he can't even explain what it is it's beyond his grasps and he even says I don't have the words I'm only 10 years old and he can't even explain the magnitude of what this being is I mean we see this being being shown to us as this big like octopus monster of you know shipwreckage graveyard out in space kind of encapsulating the carrier and on the inside of the carrier all the other heroes are dealing with the Aegean who we now learn is also being controlled by Mondragon so River decides to connect with Angie the engineer and she didn't even know that this could be possible but Kind of like in Avatar, he grabs one of her, one of her dreads, her one of her pieces of hair, and basically sticks it into his temple and says, "We're networked." And he starts running the show, and basically, I guess, is kind of taking control of the carrier. It's it's pretty cool. Um, you know, we learn a lot about the ship and what it's doing to to try to attack him. Well, I mean, he's kind of controlling the ship through Angie and then we we flip over to the other heroes who are trying to take care of are trying to attack the Aegean who has who has entered and killed a bunch of people Jack's got point for this team but doesn't really know what to do <laughs> I mean he, he he has some things up his sleeve we'll just say um, he is taking some notes from Angie and Christine in the deck of the ship, but he's he's definitely running the show down here other than that. He doesn't really know what's outside of the ship. He doesn't realize that there's more going on than just this Aegean. He doesn't realize that Mondragon is actually this big thing outside of the ship. So Mondragon actually starts attacking the ship, and the whole ship is shaking, um, the Aegean is smiling. He knows what's going on. And River is freaking out. He, he's been sucking in all this data of, that the carrier has and just unleashes this spam attack on Mondragon, which I don't know why data would frustrate it, but it apparently does. Everybody gets frustrated by spam. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, means. <laughs> yeah, apparently terabytes and petabytes of spam drives the thing nuts. It actually says zettabytes of information, which is a lot, I suppose. It starts with uh, the letter Z, it must be. Yeah, right. We go back to Jack and the other heroes who are attacking the Aegean, and Jack is making Flint take point and she's basically like, um, I'm not indestructible. <laughs> At least my brain isn't indestructible, and this guy can kick all of our asses. <laughs> she, 
she's not too happy with the idea of just rushing this guy. But that's basically what Jack wants to do is rush this guy and, you know, kind of pile on him and hopefully it'll slow him down, which it doesn't really at all. Yeah, that reminded me of the scene from the original Ghostbusters. It's like, get her! <laughs> like, get her, Ray? That was your big plan? <laughs> right. River tries getting the ship to attack Mondragon. I mean, we keep going back and forth between the team upstairs and the team downstairs, or the team at the control deck and the team fighting the Aegean. Um, but basically, nothing's really working. They're getting their butts handed to them, so to speak. Finally, Jack has the smart idea to use Roxy to have her gravity powers to force the Aegean four floors down because Jack knows that he has his, you know, box item and we're finally going to get that big reveal that's been building up for issues upon issues. And it's interesting to note that, you know, he actually tells Roxy that, you know, you're not a child anymore, do this. Because she's unsure that she can control her powers to get him to go down a specific number of levels. She thinks that, you know, she'll just send him through the floor and won't be able to stop him. So here's another instance where we see, you know, another Gen 13 member stepping up to the plate to, you know, be an an adult, basically, and, you know, do it they need to do to get things done and save the day. So she sends them down and thankfully gets it to the fourth floor and or four floors down and we see the Aegean actually go up to the to the door which is the room that Jack has his box in and he senses what's in there. I don't know how but he does. I guess it's an electronic thing and Jack basically says we got to get him in there. This is how we're going to beat this guy. So everybody flat out attacks him, gets him into the room. Jack jumps on top of the box. And what does he do? He pulls out this wicked looking gun that wraps it around his arm. And we click, quickly learn that it's an EMP and he takes out the Aegean. For how long? Well, that's to be determined, I guess, next issue. But... We go back to you know, River, and he's spent. He can't handle it anymore, trying to attack Mondragon. And the High is not too happy about it. They realize that they don't have another choice right now. We go back down to the other crew, and Grifter has a few words to say about what Jack was hiding. And I think he's a little upset that he had it on there, and had it in there and didn't really tell anybody about it because it's basically an EMP and it could have taken down the entire carrier anytime that Jack felt that that was needed and that's a little too much power for one person to hold I think and I think there's still some mystery behind that why Jack had it and what this thing can do because we've never seen it before ever going back to the flight deck the high makes his you know, final words to River and Christine and the engineer and basically is going to fly off to save the carrier and everybody in it. 
And since Mondragon was weakened by River and his spam, or whatever else he was throwing at it, the high flies off into the heart of the Mondragon, and it's assumed that you know he blows it up, or at least slows it down enough to let the carrier get away, and the high is no longer. Now, we've seen the high go through a lot of things, so we can't say that he's dead for sure, but that's what's implied, and this is the end of the book. And we get a little bit of the status update text that we normally get at the end of the book instead of the beginning. Joe, what did you think of this issue? Um, well, for me, you know, like I said about the last issue, I was, I was expecting something different with Mondragon. So the idea of him is cool, but I, I just, I never wrapped around this character very much. I mean, it is a cool shot to see how big it is compared to the authorities carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that, that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around because it's like you're you're looking at the carrier, you're like trying to th- think of the people in there, and it's just like this thing is massive. It's like its own solar system. So, but yeah, it was pretty interesting. Like you said, that that River pretty much attacks it with spam, you know, because he's been collecting this data in his head, you know, for ten years, you know, because he's ten years old, and just releases all at once. And yeah, it's it's cool that that they kept the Aegean, you know, as powerful as he's supposed to be. And I gotta say, for as much as I like Grifter, sometimes I really question his choices. Though, <laughs> you know, there's a scene where he jumps on the Aegean's back and starts shooting him in the neck, and I'm like, dude, this is why you died in Captain Adam Armageddon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> stop doing stupid stuff. <laughs> you know, you got off easy this time. You just got bitch lapped across the room. You know. <laughs> But just like Flint, you know, if Flint is worried about herself and she is pretty, you know, near, near vulnerable, you don't need to be jumping on the back of the, of the dude who's, you know, as powerful as Majestic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, Deathblow is hurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, Deathblow, I'm pretty sure got his neck broke. <laughs> you know, there's a big old crack, uh you know, uh, sound effect, and I'm like, yeah, it's a good thing he can come back whenever he, when, as long as there's a piece of him left, you know, but, but no, it was a good issue, yeah, I, I did like the same, the thing about Roxy, it is cool that, that the Gen 13 kids are being asked to step up, and, you know, there's not the time to, to, you know, to just, to be afraid, and it was cool to see that with Grunge over on Wildcats, and to see that with her here. Exactly. And, um, Another thing, I'm sorry, my my man Grifter, I'm just questioning everything he's doing in this issue. <laughs> the scene, the the let's get him scene, Grifter's just jumping, throwing a grenade at him. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that's just so funny to me. Like, dude, you know, I don't know, for those of you who, who, who play City Heroes out there, you know, Grifter would be a blaster class. And everybody knows that blasters stay in the background and shoot from far away, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You don't rush in with the tanks and the scrappers because you're going to (laughs) die. Meanwhile, he's throwing a grenade that's like two feet from everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because I I, I play... Anyway, it's just it's not smart, and I don't know what he's doing. I just want to slap him. Uh, Yeah, I I was a little disappointed with the reveal, finally, of, of Jack's box. I was like, oh, it's a gun. Okay. And yeah, I get, I mean, he, he basically, when he uses it, he commands it to be at 1-100 strength, which is like, okay, that 
at one you know 100 strength it was able to take out the Aegean so yeah that's pretty powerful so yeah at 100 percent I can see it taking out the carrier but it was just a little eh you know it was just so much build up and I just felt a little let down with that but it's all right although I am glad that there's still a little bit of mystery attached to it like you said you know he calls it Mayumi which um, did you read the Jack Hawksmore miniseries uh yes I did Okay, because I was going to ask you if that was from there, because I haven't read that one. You know, it sounds familiar, but it was a while ago. I should have looked it up, actually. Well, nobody on the board said anything about it yet, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. And yeah, the the thing with the high was cool. I mean, it, the thing about the high, I don't know if, if, if you just picked up the authority and you've only been reading since this team took over and you've read the high, there may not be as much of an impact for you. Because, you know, obviously the high story began, you know, way back in Warren Ellis' run. But even even now, he, you know, he'd been absent from the Wallstrom universe until 2008 when Number of the Beast happened. You know, so, so he's had this huge two-year arc leading up to this moment. You know, so, so I think that's more for, for people who've been following it for a long time. Because I'm not sure if a newer reader would, would get the same impact of that story without, you know, basically you'd have to read Number of the Beast and then you'd have to follow Stormwatch PhD until it ends and then you follow the authority if you just wanted to concentrate on him. But no, it was a good issue. Um, what did I give this? I think I gave it an 8. <laughs> so I still, I'm still liking this series. I mean, I'm a little biased because I prefer Wildcats, but I still like, you know, I'm still enjoying the authority. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's a good thing that you bring up the high. I kind of breeze through that real quick. But at the end, when he's making his decision and walking away from River to go save, you know, everybody on the carrier, you know, that's this is kind of the high's redemption from all that he's done. And there's been several instances throughout his existence, at least in the universe, where, you know, he screwed up. Not necessarily on purpose, but... He has a lot to redeem, let's just say. Yeah, so there is three solid pages, you know, of him, you know, taking care of River, making sure that everything's going to be all right with him, because, I mean, he is a 10-year-old kid. He He's basically his father, and he's leaving him potentially forever. But, yeah, another solid issue. Uh, I love what Tom Taylor's doing with this this whole series. It's, it's good, solid writing. This one was action-packed. It didn't have as much humor as the last couple, but it's really fun to see, you know, the carrier in space. And when they first suggested that it was going to, you know, leave Earth, I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. But it's been an awesome ride, and I can't wait to see where they go next. Yeah, because we're only halfway through their their run, that we still got all the way to December for the rest of it. <laughs> yep, and I don't know if we're going to see, like, two or three more you know, big kind of things because Mondragon was only really two issues and they have a lot to do for those next six to bring them back basically because that is the intention that they're going to be back at Earth in December. Yeah, we'll see. All right, we'll go ahead and move on to our next review which is Sparta USA number five which is written by David Lapham, the art and the cover by Johnny Timmons. Now, as all of you know, <laughs> this has been the series. Is, I don't know. 
I don't know which one frustrates me more, this one or Authority Lost Year. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I will say that I wish this issue had happened about three issues ago. <laughs> because... No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> because the way... I mean, it didn't necessarily have to start the series like this. I would have been fine if this would have been like issue three. Maybe even four. But not five. <laughs> of a six-issue miniseries. You know, we, we ended last issue with a cliffhanger with basically the Maestro returning and he's got an army of Nazis with him and they're invading Sparta. And it's like, do, huh, what? You know, <laughs> I mean, where did this come from all of a sudden? <laughs> you know, because as, as if you've been listening, you've heard that, you know, we, Sparta is, is a town somewhere. They're all about football. Apparently there's magic. You know, the main character, Godfrey, you know, is red skinned and he, you know, he controls magic and apparently he's a very good fighter and he's an ex quarterback from this town. The maestro runs this town and apparently has everybody eating out of his hand, even though there's something very weird going on in this town. And, I mean, the first few pages of this, I mean, are great. I mean, it's basically, if you've ever seen, like, Red Dawn or any of those movies, you know, <laughs> this is basically guerrilla warfare against the Nazis. You know, people going through the town and just, you know, sabotaging tanks and things like that. And it's like, where was this early in this series? <laughs> I don't know if this is enough before we're done. So, I mean, I'll just have to wait and see how it all ends next issue. And apparently the Nazis don't worry Godfrey as much as, as anybody else because they're hiding out and, you know, he's, I guess, training Johnny, the current quarterback, to be a fighter because that's what they seem to be doing while the rest of the town is being invaded. The art was surprising to me. It starts off really strong, but in these scenes with Godfrey, it gets a little bit weak. It was, that was very, that was very strange. I don't know why. I agree. It did, it did kind of lag in certain panels. Yeah, it's kind of like he had Godfrey's look down perfect, and then he just kind of glazed through it. I don't know how to say it. It's just like it's. I know it's still Godfrey because it's you know the red skin and everything, but it's just weird. It's like it's not. It's it's almost like it's not Johnny Timmons anymore drawing it, but I know it is. So, and then, you know, we move on to um, Ralphie and, you know, he's going after his sister who has gone crazy and is trying to take a baby, you know, from this woman who she thought was supposed to be theirs. That's not this, his sister. That's his wife. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Calls, her name is Sissy, but. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I was about to correct myself. <laughs> like, Sparta's weird, but it's not that weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he goes, sis, sis, come on. I mean, it, yeah. yeah, you can accidentally read it that way. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So, it's not his sister. It's his wife. <laughs> nice. Um, she's gone crazy. She's She's pulling a Jack Nicholson from The Shining and going after this lady with the baby with an axe. And um, Godfrey, I guess, had given Ralphie one of those magic berries. I don't even know what to call it. <laughs> and uh, it's supposed to help them. And this has got to be the weirdest scene in the whole comic. I, I need some of those magic berries. <laughs> he wrestles Sissy to the crown and force feeds her the berries. And she goes from this rage to all of a sudden she's, you know, basically telling him, oh, Ralphie, and there's all these little hearts. That's what's really so weird about this. In the word balloon, there's little hearts. 
That is the coolest word balloon I've ever seen. <laughs> like, where did that come from? It's awesome. And the lady and the baby are standing in the background, and it looks like Ralphie and Sissy are about to make it in front of them. I mean, I'm like... It really does. And then we go back to Nazis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we go back to... Uh, why can I never remember the name of this girl? Um, uh, you got her? me. That's <laughs> What's no name? offense, but David Laffham does a terrible job of setting up his characters. <laughs> <laughs> what is her name? I don't remember. Um, Screw it. It's Godfrey's love. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. It's it's the woman who's actually doing something, too. That's why I feel bad. Because <laughs> she's, she's the one playing super spy, and she's you know sneaking around and getting stuff done. And I think it's funny that they're still using computer disks, by the way. Yeah, three and a half. Yeah. Um, apparently, whatever she has on that computer disk uh, can help them. And no, no, no. no. I, I thought it was the surveillance of Wanda from the last issue. Was. Okay, I don't even know anymore. That- <laughs> <laughs> All I know is she dresses up as a Nazi. She hijacks a truck. She gets all these refugees back into the woods. We have a interesting action scene where they escape from the Nazis only for her to get captured. But I think the refugees get away. So yeah, I mean the rest of the issue is just kind of going over how they're uh, like I said, it's guerrilla style warfare against the Nazis. Um, they've occupied the town. They've This is awesome to see you even try to explain this. Yeah, well I mean I don't know. <laughs> Like I said in my review, if David Lapham walked up to Wildstorm and was like, you know, blah, 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 Nazis, and they were like, okay, yes, <laughs> you know, I would have been, yeah. And he's, you, you had me at Nazi. Yes. I mean, well, you know, they're the perfect bad guy because, you know, they don't represent the German people. They are their own thing, you know, so it's easy to turn them into a villain because they don't represent the Germans at all. You know, they were their total separate faction. So it's like you, you, there's no fear of offending anybody when you use Nazis as a villain. As a villain, you know. So, so anyway, you know, get to the end, and I guess, you know, uh, Godfrey's trying to lay out some sort of plan to retake the town, and we've got. Um, I'm still looking for her name. I wish somebody would say it. <laughs> Sorry, uh, not going to be me. Because <laughs> she's captured and they're interrogating her and she very cleverly tries to fool the Nazis into thinking that she's going to allow them to sleep with her and that's her chance to get away. And Oh, here's another. Here's the part that's just like way from way out there. Gottfried goes out middle of nowhere and strikes up a fire and the maestro shows up and they just start talking to each other like nothing I mean they're like the leaders of this big conflict and they're just gonna sit down and have this very you know almost like a Professor X Magneto playing chess style conversation (laughs) we find out that the maestro is actually the Pied Piper of old fables of Hamlin and I'm like what? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> Why is the Pied Piper in this 
comic and why is he blue and why is he leading Nazis? <laughs> I don't know anymore. All I know is that the girl who will not be named <laughs> <laughs> shows up at the end and gets shot by Wanda McLean. And that's our big cliffhanger. We we have to get Lapham on for this last issue because someone someone needs to explain this to us. No, 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 no. I don't think he wants to talk to us. <laughs> I mean, maybe we would like it more if we had a freaking clue. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I've told all of you exactly what happened. You know, see, this is the difference. I'm not sitting here and bashing it. I'm just telling you what happens and, and that I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> and by next issue based on the cover of next issue that I've seen in solicits I assume we'll have some sort of final showdown between Godfrey and the maestro you know and other than that I don't know it's just I just don't see why we had to have so much set up in this in this series you know honestly I mean this could have happened two or three issues ago and it would have been so much better. I mean, all this stuff uh, where I skipped through and you were saying that you were having fun listening to me explain it, that's a bunch of issues right there. All that guerrilla <laughs> style. I'm serious. All that guerrilla war style stuff, those would have, that would have made great issues, you know? And I don't even want to know what what's the deal with Ralphie and Sissy. You know, I don't know. I mean, at first I thought it was just to show the whole thing about the babies and how in Sparta they really think that, that the stork brings them, you know, and that's the whole thing is that, you know, only select couples get them, so that's what drives Sissy crazy, you know, that she can't, not that she can't be given a baby, it's not that she can't have a baby, you know, because they have no idea that the babies can be made. So. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to have a lot more to talk about whenever that issue number six finally hits the stands and we can, you know, breathe Sparta in as a whole. But to me, this issue should have been issue number one. Even how, you know, all the voiceovers are done, this would have been an amazing issue number one. You keep even saying this should have been an issue way before the first four issues are pointless in my mind. It's not the setup. This issue is the setup. If this was issue number one, he could have gone and explained a few more things in later issues. But, like, this is doing nothing to, you know, close off this story. This isn't a build-up issue in my mind. This issue should have been set up at the beginning. And... This you even said like this issue doesn't even feel like Sparta like it's a completely different book. At least you did in your written review. I mean, it's just this is. I mean, this is like reading an entirely new book, which is why I feel like this should have been issue number one because this actually sets up the craziness that's ensuing. I mean, he could have explained some of it in detail earlier, but like. We have all that stuff going on with Ralphie and Sissy in issue number one, and it's like, what's the point? You know, what was the point of all of that? Yeah. No, the only reason I, I don't say that this should have been the first issue is because in remembering the first issue, I know why he wanted to set up Sparta the way he did. Like, why he wanted to get the give the town that feel and all that stuff. You know, and that was fine for the first issue or two. 
it's just not for the first four. You know, that's my argument. Is that we didn't need to know all about Sparta for four issues. We could have just gone one or two and then the, and then jumped into this. I mean, I liked this issue. I mean, I I I I I only gave it a six, I think, just because I was so frustrated about the earlier stuff. You know, but I just I was just like, where were you? Where you been? You know, <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> I'll stick with five. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's not terrible. If I gave it a one, two, or three, then you could complain. But <laughs> all right, shall we move on? We shall. The horse is dead. <laughs> X-Files 30 Days of Night, number one. We've been looking forward to this a long time. You know, I had my interview with Steve Knowles. Uh, was that last episode? Man, time flies. Uh, it was episode six. Ah, okay, good. Anywho, this one debuts for the first time at three ninety nine for Wildstorm. Is this right? This is the very first Wildstorm release at three ninety nine. Uh. Yeah, I think so. As far as Wildstorm U and creator-owned titles, yeah. I think some of the other ones may have already started at three ninety nine, like the licensed stuff. Yeah, well, this is split with IDW, so maybe there was something else going on there. But anyways, this one's at three ninety nine. so ouch. But yeah. <laughs> you'll see. Maybe worth it. Um, this one's written by Steve Niles and Adam Jones, and the art is by Tom Mandrake. There were several cover variations, one by Andrea Sorrentino, um, one by Tom Mandrake, and one by Sam Keith. The, so, the Andrea one is my favorite. That's the one that we have posted, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just think it's perfect for this. I haven't actually looked at the other two, so. Anyways, so this story opens on Wainwright, Alaska. And it is the second week of darkness. Now, I'm going to explain this issue as briefly as possible. Because if any of you have ever watched X-Files in the past, it's very dialogue heavy. And they go into a lot of detail. And yeah, for reviewing's sake, you don't really need to know it. You just need to know what's going on. So, this may seem brief, but there's a lot to this issue. Um, this issue opens on... A plowed truck driver, and his name is Henry Lee Brown. Uh, Patches is his nickname. And he has spent the last 45 years of his life in Alaska. The only time he's spent outside of Alaska was a small stint with the National Guard and his honeymoon. Other than that, he likes the north, and he likes the isolation, I guess. And Patches is driving along because, you know, he just wanted to get away from the kids and the wife and spend some time plowing and collecting his thoughts. And wouldn't you know, he comes across a gruesome scene out in the middle of nowhere. And there are, I believe, well, he comes into all this wreckage of trucks and craziness. But what he finds is this 40-foot pole with 16 bodies up on top of the pole. And they're decapitated. And all the decapitated heads are at the base of the pole. It's pretty freaky. Right up X-Files alley. 
So, he radios in to try to get somebody from dispatch out there. And then we cut to Agent Mulder and Scully. And they're on the scene. And they are basically, you know, coming together to see what the heck's going on. Now, you know, they're used to seeing weird stuff like this. But it obviously freaked out the driver and there's always jurisdiction issues when you know they come in and the FBI comes in and then you have local authority so we have another agent you know French that comes in and there's a lot of good humor between between him and Mulder and uh, apparently they don't like each other very much and uh, Scully has to be the go-between between those two but you know, they look at these bodies. It's it's a really interesting display how they're up there like that. You know, they're, they're stuck to the posts. And, you know, they thought that they were bound up there. But due to, you know, the sweat or the moisture from the bodies and the freezing cold temperatures, they're actually stuck to the post like a like a tongue on a, on a flagpole like that you would see in, you know, that you would do in the winter or you would see in, well, what was that, a Christmas story. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's really cool, actually, because, you know, those bodies weigh a lot, but it must be pretty darn cold up there. So, you know, everybody's discussing what may or may not have happened, and, you know, Mulder and Scully, you know, talk to Patches, and, you know, we find out that, you know, one of the heads that, he saw at the base was, you know, his friend that he had just seen or just had drinks with the night before. He's pretty upset about that. And he also says that, you know, he's seen some some pretty bad wrecks in his past, you know, his long tenure as a driver, but he's never seen metal twisted up quite like that. It, it's quite an interesting scene for them, you know. All the workers are trying to get the bodies down to thaw out and so they can examine them and it's cool. You you could see this being an X Files episode, and you know, being really intrigued by it. It it reads very well, and and the art just goes along perfectly with it. And so then we move on to, you know, Patches driving home from the scene, and you know he, you know he was driving out of frustration from his family and his wife, and he just wanted to get away at first before he came onto the scene. And now he's driving home, and he can't think anything better than being with his family. He can't wait to hug and kiss his kids, and you know, and even says make love to his wife. And he, he really has found a new appreciation for them after seeing all those bodies. And you know, it probably could have been him. And he makes his way home, and he can't wait. And he's like, why are the lights out? Not good. Yeah. He asks, he goes, honey, kids? And the very last page is his two kids and his wife on the dining room table, their heads on a platter, their bodies seated in the, on the table around them, or around the table, and all the vampires. You know, their mouths dripping with blood. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> This is a great setup issue. It's, it's just, it's fantastic. No, it, it, it really is. Um, you know, I, I was just a casual X-Files viewer. I always really enjoyed it when they were doing the alien conspiracy stuff. Kind of got away from it whenever they did. And uh, But 30 Days of Night, I have read the first couple of trades, and I really like that series a lot. 
the cool thing about Third Days of Night is that it's it's more the situation than it is any particular characters. Um, you know, obviously it has to be that time of the year in Alaska for this story to take place. You know, the the Thirty Days of Darkness because uh, the vampires, as far as I've seen, they keep changing every series. So if there's any, I mean, they don't name any of the ones in here, but if there's any that are here that are from any other series, I don't, I wouldn't know yet just by looking at them. So that's pretty cool that, that, you know, for that aspect of it, you know, you're really just putting the story in that setting. And uh, who knows, I don't know which other character survived other than the, from the trades I've read, you know, the sheriff's wife is still there from that storyline. So, I, but we'll see if she shows up. I doubt it because you said they're in Wainwright and she's in Bar- Barrow, I think was the name of the town she was in. Got me. But, um... <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get to read any Thirty Days. Sadly. Oh yeah, no. You should. You should. You should try to read at least at least the first one. The first one, I mean, is still the best out of the, out of the two that I've read. Right. Which um, Steve called me out for, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Steve Niles, I've no- noticed, is really good at writing characters. Um, that's why this whole thing for. Uh, Patches Brown, the truck driver, for his story to to book in this issue is very clever, and I will say that that between Steve Niles and Adam Jones, um, who is from the band Tool, by the way, for those of y'all who don't know, mm-hmm. um, the writing is seamless. I can't. It's it's like I can't I can't point at these scenes and be like, oh, Steve Niles did that one. Oh, uh, that doesn't sound like Steve Niles, so it must be Adam Jones. You know, I mean, it all just flows together very nicely. At first, I was thinking of this as an X Files episode, but this would probably be more like a movie. It's just uh, just a bigger scale. I mean, when when Patches comes across the the trucker graveyard, you know that's just that's just a big epic shot, and and the reveal, everything is laid out to me like storyboards in a movie. You know, it's like when he goes to the to the pickup and just happens to hit the lights and that's when he first sees that pole of bodies you were talking about you know it's just like that's exactly how i would picture it you know if this was a movie i i agree and i disagree with that only because like in the movie there's always this silly setup where they have to get each other to go back out where they do what they have to go get each other to go back out to a scene you know in the last you know movie scully really had to pull on Mulder to get him to go, you know, see what had happened. Mm. See what Whereas saying. this one, they're just, they're together and they're going out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That's the thing too. I mean, cause I felt like, like, like that sounded like, like, um, like both of them, you know, it sounded like Scully and Mulder to me, the dialogue. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, of course, I was de- definitely, you know, picturing their voices from the show uh, in my mind when I'm reading it, so that made it much more fun. So, you know, if you're an X-Files fan, obviously this is definitely going to appeal to you because, you know, there hasn't been any any new X-Files stuff since the movie and the other Wildstorm comic that they did, you know, for 30 Days of Night fans. I mean, here's this world again. They just put Mulder and Scully in it, you know, and this story, <laughs> this story so far is, you know, really cool. I mean, I love that ending shot. It's just so gruesome. <laughs> like, but it's great. 
you know, a great way to end the first issue. You know, I gave it an eight. I think it's on its way to greatness. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun series. Yeah, I also gave it an eight. I I can't wait to read the rest of this. And, I mean, you guys probably don't know, but Joe and I had always said, you know, we're going to do all the Wildstorm Universe titles and all the creator-owned stuff. Well, this isn't isn't creator-owned. It's it's more licensed property. And we weren't really going to review the licensed property. Well, mostly due to budget and reading time, basically. But, you know, I, I made... We both made a little promise. I, I probably kind of pushed it, but I said, hey, Steve Niles is, you know, going around with his signing tour for Mystery Society. If we can get him on our show, we'll do his book. Well, we got him on the show, so we're doing the book. And I'm really <laughs> glad that we are because this was an awesome issue. I also gave it an eight. I It was a really cool read. It, it did feel like Mulder and Scully, and you are in that 30 Days of Night world right off the bat. And five more to go. It's going to be a sweet ride. Yeah. Yeah. And the cool thing, I mean, I consider it, it's half creator owned, you know, because. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, he did start off like that, which, um, funny thing is, Third Days of Night came out the, the year that X Files ended. So I guess it was just kind of an issue with timing why this, why this never happened before until now. Well, I don't think anybody thought of the two worlds together, but man, it makes a great peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> yeah. So. All right, we'll go ahead and move on to our last book, which is The Authority of the Lost Year, number 10. The story is by Keith Giffen and Grant Morrison, and is written by Keith Giffen, with art by Brandon Badeau, and the covers by Gene Ha. And, you know, we don't have any special pick of the week or surprise of the week, but this would definitely be the surprise of the week <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I think for you, too. Absolutely. <laughs> I think for a lot of people. You know, we've talked about Lost Year, and, you know, it's another series that, you know, we've just been frustrated with because it just has not been that great overall. I mean, it's had its moments, but just when you look at it as a whole, it's just not been a very good series. And it's just... You know, part of it has been that they've gone to these, the authority has gone to these different realities, and some of them had really good setup, and then no payoff, or, or very weak payoff. And some of them have just not had a good setup, and then, the, so of course, the payoff was just equally as bad. But this one, two things. This is a very strong issue, as we're going to get into, but the other thing is, is that I know that it wraps up next issue. <laughs> so it makes me very sad, but at least I expect it this time. No, we have two issues. It goes to 12. Right? Yeah, but I'm talking about this particular arc is not... Oh, yes, yes. It's only going to be Sorry. two issues long. I would love for it to be longer, though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Let's just start talking about Brandon Badu's art, because that is what makes this issue for me. For those of you who've been following Wildstorm, you know, you've seen his art in the Dane Loyalties uh, backup story, which was in the early, wild, uh, early Worlds and In issues which you can find in the Wildstorm uh, after the fall trade paperback. And he also did Authority Number 10, which was kind of like a, um, uh, I don't want to call it a filler issue. It was a, like a prelude, I guess, to the second part of, of DNA's uh, Authority arc. And he did an entire issue, and it's just amazing. I mean, I don't know if um, Johnny Wrench also colored his previous works, but 
between the art and, and the coloring here. I mean, it's got that kind of like a watercolor look to it. And it's just incredible art. Um, this is a world where the authority, basically, for those of you who, who read The Authority Revolution, you know, uh, right before that was coup d'etat, where the authority basically took over the U.S. And, you know, they had control of it for a while. And then during the Authority Revolution, they lost control of the U.S. You know, the wild storm continuity continued. This is basically saying, what if they took control and kept it? And that is a really cool premise. Now this is kind of one of those, okay, we've taken over the world, now what do we do? You know, we open up with a, with the uh, alternate Midnighter, which uh, Chris Stryker dubbed the Red Nighter, which I thought was funny. <laughs> um, the, some of the designs, like for, for Midnighter here, are just great. I mean, he, he's got this kind of like Nazi uniform thing going on. He's got the Midnighter symbols kind of cleverly, you know, put here and there. And he's just, they're just letting him know that um, they've detected another authority and they need to be captured, which of course the authority they're referring to is our Wildstorm authority. And, um, you know, they're discussing. You know, they've come to another Earth, and it's like, well, this is not ours, so basically let's just get out of here. But before they have a chance to do that, they are surrounded by a bunch of ships. And instead of fighting their way out, they decide to surrender, which is very uncharacteristic of them, but uh, apparently they have their reasons this time. And they're surrounded by some troops who have some very familiar-looking rose tattoos on their heads <laughs> and this is the kind of detail that that Brandon puts in here that it's just like I mean the detail in each of these guys is just amazing <laughs> to go through and to detail the way that these tattoos are on them and it's just it's just I'm, I mean I'm, I'm probably gonna use the words incredible amazing and and awesome a lot you know just talking to his art and Forgive me for my lack of adjectives. But um, another surprise is we get to see the, uh, the doctor from, the, from Warren Ellis' run in here. Of course, it's an alternate doctor, but it's... Um, uh, how do you say his name? Thorndike is his last name. I don't know if you say Jerome or... Uh, but it's, uh, it's the doctor with the, red, with the, cool, the cool red glasses. <laughs> but he's not new to us. Yeah, but... Um, it, it's cool to see him again, even if it's an alternate version of him. And, um, you know, so the authorities take him to an Antarctic detention facility. And this is, to me, where the, the story starts getting epic. I mean, it's just one issue we're dealing with this story. But this is where where it takes its turn for me. Basically, Jenny Quantum starts talking to this Earth's grunge. And, you know, he's obviously older here, and he's, you know, all, you see him with a lock of hair that, that's, uh, you know, black and purple, which is obviously from, from free fall, and you're wondering what in the world happened to her, you know, why does he have that, and he looks all beat up and scarred, and he got Majestic in another cell holding his armor, which I think it's funny they let him keep his armor, I wonder if it's to taunt him. Interesting note, Majestic has a whole bunch of tattoos on him. But she can't really make out what they are, but I'd be really curious to see what the story behind that. 
But anyway, then we basically get this retelling of the Authority Revolution, and you get Brandon illustrating key moments in Wildstorm's history, like like uh, the Authority versus the Americans, and you know them their encounter with Jacob Kriegstein, and you know when they take over the United States and. And this time, you know, like I said, the difference is they keep control. You know, it even goes on to, to show how how they were able to take out any of the any of the other heroes who were trying to stop them. And uh <laughs> look what happened to my man Grifter. <laughs> he got shot. <laughs> what did I tell you? He probably he probably tried to shoot Midnighter in the back of the head or something. Anyway. So yeah, so so you got all the survivors in this detention center, and of course, like I said, it includes grunge, and we saw Majestic, and Midnighters over here talking to an alternate voodoo who looks beautiful, by the way, drawn by Brandon, and again with her tattoos and everything, it's just great. The alternate Jenny Quantum finds it very suspicious that this authority surrendered without a fight, but apparently she's the only one who's concerned about that. Uh, the Wildstorm Midnighter figured us out that um, that his alternate version probably put a, p- a failsafe in this prison just in case they captured the wrong one, and he was right. And we get to see Jackson King and boxers, which I'm sure lots of fans were waiting for. <laughs> see an alternate King, <laughs> see an alternate version of King in his boxers. I'm telling you, they let him keep their armor just to taunt them because his armor's in there too. <laughs> but they basically initiate a huge prison break, and then. We get to see the leader of the gang we saw earlier, and it's it's the alternate version of Rose Tattoo, and it's one of the most badass-looking versions of Rose Tattoo that I've ever seen. I mean, my, if I had any complaint about this issue, it's that the fight between her and, and the alternate Midnighter, the panels are too small. It's like, I want to zoom in, I want to click, I want to, I want to use my I, my iPad to you know, click and zoom in, and I want to see all his detail. Yeah, and it, the panels might be small, but there is an insane amount of detail. Like, those had to have been full panels that they just scaled. Oh, they out. were. I mean, if you go back and look at the bleed, uh, you know, the blog, the Wallstorm's blog, they had some of these up, and I, they were bigger. I know they were bigger, especially especially these last few scenes where where she defeats him, because it's like, there's no way. There's no way. I was like, why did you have to shrink it down? Just a few more pages. Just make it a 24-page comic, you know? <laughs> I mean... I know. I want I want a poster of, like, five yeah. of the panels. <laughs> and it's pretty cool that she says the only reason she beats Midnighter is because, you know, since she's the spirit of death, there was no way he was going to win. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty cool concept. And as she's giving him a death kiss, I guess you could say... You see a rose sprout on her back in in her tattoos, and it has Midnighter symbol on it. And I was like, wow. So basically, the heroes, you know, initiate a, a jailbreak, and you get to see some interesting alternate versions. Like you get to see the alternate wet works, where apparently there's a female Grail in their group, and just little nods here and there. I see Tumbleweed and um, some of these other ones I didn't recognize, but uh, there's there's Slag back there even. Oh, yeah, you're right. There he is. Yeah, I was trying my best to to see who I could see. And then uh, we end with an interesting discussion amongst the Wildstorm Authority because they're basically arguing that that this authority of this world 
just did what all of them have been thinking all along. Because Midnighter admits that he's been thinking about a facility like this for a long time for their, for their I guess, superpowered beings. This is probably the most interesting argument that this series has brought up, which is, you know, do they decide to do what this authority has done and it'll allow them to finally take control of the world or and keep control of it too i mean that's the issue that happened to them they lost control or do they not so i mean all of a sudden the lost year is making me think you know it's like where'd that come from <laughs> so and then we end with um, with thorndike um basically you know taunting the captured doctor you know habib of the of our authority and uh, more cameos, uh, not good for the characters, but but good to see them. There's a fair child and a free fall, and you can't see who the third girl is, but I'd assume it's probably uh, Rainmaker if they're gonna if if this is all the Gen 13 kids. But at least we see Free Falls alive, but she's not alive in the in the most ideal place, as she's basically one of Thorndike's sex slaves. And uh, interesting thing, it ends with Thorndike asking Habib to kill him. And then we get it to be continued. And like everybody else on the board uh, talked about, they went back and reread and just flipped through and looked at the art again and just, where did this issue come from? <laughs> where did this come from? Where have you been? Another one. This is the episode of Where Have You Been? <laughs> For at least two of the books. I'll let you gush about it for a while. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I this rating may be inflated because of the suck fest that was the last two issues, if not further than that. But I gave this thing a nine. Bados our art is just oh man, it just makes you melt. It's so freaking good. And, yeah, the discussion at the end really summed it up. I mean, apparently they did think far enough back that this was all going to make sense. We had to go through some craziness. And with that discussion, I actually accept that, that ridiculousness that we had to read through. And I think if this was put in a trade where all 12 of these were together, it would be a lot stronger but they've already split it, so that's not going to happen. Hopefully it'll hold strong for the last two. Yeah, at least for number 11. I mean, 12, whatever. I mean, I don't really care anymore. I'm just glad that at least these two could be good. Ah, it was fantastic. It was ridiculous. Like you said, where did it come from? Issue 10 of a 12-issue series is not the time to get your groove. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And to sum it all up, because they're kind of like bringing it back together, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I gave it an 8, but that's because I'm expecting to be blown away next issue. Just, if nothing else, by the art. Well, I think that, that also helped to inflate mine, because that's a crazy number to put next to this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think the highest I've given is maybe a 7. I don't think I've gone higher. <laughs> Alright. So... Other Wildstorm releases for the last three weeks. We have on uh, June 30th, Dante's Inferno um, trade released. And that should encapsulate one through six of that. And Gears of War number 12 came out. 
Resident Evil number five of six came out, and I know that's been long awaited, and I know others have wanted to know when six is coming out. Well, it's not solicited, and Wildstorm won't solicit it until it's done and ready, so just hold your panties on. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> nobody's gonna res- nobody's gonna respond to that guy on the board, so I'll just <laughs> L- listen to the podcast. Yeah. It's not gonna release until they solicit it. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Releases for July eighth. Now this was Thursday because of Independence Day. So it was absolute planetary book number one. Yay. Everybody go out and get it because it'll probably sell out again like the last ones did. Tom Strong and the Robots of Doom number two released. And for July 14th, we have Absolute Planetary book number two. Double yay. <laughs> Go get that one as well. It's it's only going to put you out somewhere between 75 and 100 bucks, depending on where you buy it from. I mean, come on. You, just, you, know, you guys don't need that money. <laughs> right. But if you don't get it now, you're going to have to fork over 200 yeah. bucks on eBay. <laughs> Uh, Astro City Silver Agent number one of two released. Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, the Nightmare Warriors. I guess that's a trade. Yeah. That's a lot of fighting. <laughs> a lot of groovy fighting. <laughs> yeah. Here's my boomstick. Anyways, and Free Realms number 11 of 12 released. So a lot of cool stuff to check out that we haven't reviewed. So go get them. Yep. And if you want to get a hold of uh, Ben and I, of course, you can drop by the website, which is wallstormaddiction.com, or you can um, find me on Twitter. I'm at grifter78, and you can look up both Ben and I at the Wallstorm Resource Wiki. Uh, ben is yoyomaster146. Um, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter uh, at wildstormaddict. Or you can drop us an email at wildstormaddiction at gmail.com. And just to let some of y'all know, I will be at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Be looking for me, especially on Saturday. I'll be wearing a Wildstorm Addiction t-shirt. And, of course, you'll see me at the Wildstorm panel. So drop on, tell me hello, and hopefully hopefully you'll have something good to say about the podcast. <laughs> hey, so. you got on the panel? No, I, no, no, not officially. I'll be at, I'll be like watching the panel, oh, oh. pretending that I'm on it. That's how you made it sound that you would be in the panel. That's pretty uh, cool. Oh, I should, you should have left it at that. That, 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 way they'd <laughs> ask, that way they'd ask, "Where's Joe?" And I'd be like, "I'm right here. I'll go sit down next to Jim Lee." You, know? <laughs> you are a lucky son of a gun. Enjoy it. And if there's any Wildstorm freebies, you better grab a stack of them, because I need one. All right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Chris Stryker awarded any this year, so. <laughs> but I'll definitely look out for some. And get them signed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm very demanding. I'm gonna say, you and all my other friends, I'm going to come back with a separate suitcase just of stuff, you know. <laughs> and ask Tim Seeley why he blew me off. <laughs> He didn't blow you off. Yeah, yeah. I'm calling you out, Tim. <laughs> you heard it here now. <laughs> anyway, we hope we hope you and Tim Seeley and everybody else will keep listening. So <laughs> 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 you guys take care and we'll 
we'll be we'll be back with you after San Diego Comic Con. We'll hopefully we'll have a lot of good news to talk about. So good night everybody. <laughs>